Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author, and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. In this episode of the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast, I speak with Lou Palmer, an editor with Room Magazine. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you might notice that I sprinkle my colleagues into the podcast and bring them in for different interviews. And one of the reasons for this comes up in the interview, and it's just so important to hear from as many perspectives as possible, and that's really a value of Room. Plus, I know a lot of listeners find me via Room Magazine and are interested in publishing with us. Lou Palmer is a writer of literary fiction, nonfiction, and poetry on Black relationships to nature, the fantastic in the everyday, and the retelling of history, among other things. Lou is the child of the Jamaican diaspora stretching across Canada, the UK, US, and the Caribbean. With a bush country heritage, Lou was fed on stories and raised by a river in the north. Published in North America and the Caribbean, Lou is a Breadloaf Writing Conference alumni and a Banff Center Writer Studio Artist in Residence alumni. We start our conversation by talking a bit about our own working relationship and give a little insight into how things work at Room Magazine, where we're both collective members. And we refer to a brilliant proofreading experience from when we first met, I'm using air quotes here, because it was in the document of the neurodivergence-themed issue proof, and that was my most recent experience editing an issue of Room. I reached Lou at their family's home in rural Jamaica, and you may or maybe you will not hear a rooster in the background of the audio, depending on my sound editor, Adam Linder's magic skills. Listen to hear more about Lou's Afrofuturistic writing and insightful notes about what makes the difference between work they accept to an issue and work they feel isn't ready yet. So hi, Lou, and welcome to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm excited to talk about writing in general, but also about our very specific and different experiences working with Room. I want to start with our recent meeting where we've only met, I guess it's in the last few months. And when we were paired together to select entries in a Room contest long list, this is a little bit of showing listeners, I guess, how the sausage is made a bit that we do pair off and, and make the selections. And it was our first meeting and I thought it really went great. And we hadn't met since our first other meeting in text, which is literally a marked up PDF for proofreading for the neurodivergence issue that I edited with Room and that you kindly were a proofreader on. So I guess my first question is wondering if it's as weird for you to meet people that way as it is for me in proofreading, especially when it's a little vulnerable critiquing someone's work that way too. I actually don't think of it as weird, maybe because of the structure at Room, especially when we're proofreading it really does feel like it's yeah it feels like it's work that kind of belongs to you know with everybody we're all kind of there to to support each other and make sure that we are putting the issue out um so it feels more like a supportive process to me but I can also understand especially going into my first round of having proofreaders look at the work that I selected that would feel quite vulnerable 
But I think that it's become sort of a strange new normal, this kind of meeting people in virtual space and having these, you know, work-based relationships, but also kind of intimate because we're looking at writing that's important to us. We're looking at things that we're passionate about. Um, so that can be strange, but yeah, there's so many people at, at Room that I've been working with for for years and we've never actually been in the same space before. Um, and I know that that's become quite normal with um, the pandemic, these really long-term work-based relationships and we've never been in the same space. So I guess it is a little bit weird, but I honestly I don't find it that strange. I think that it's a really supportive environment. So I've kind of, I've kind of enjoyed... You know, as you said, meeting each other via a, a proof PDF and then getting to talk to each other was, um, yeah, it's kind of a fun way, I think, to connect. Now I'm kind of like, oh, is it that weird? I mean, I'm personally, social situations are often kind of weird for me. So then maybe I'm just sort of bringing that dynamic into this as well. But what I do appreciate, yeah, is that we we rolled up our sleeves and we did something really cool with that issue. And you were a big contributor even as someone who, you know, came in later on in the process and came and brought some great proofreading that veered into copy edits that were about bringing the writing more in alignment with our values around eliminating anti-Black language and idioms and illusions that our, you know, an entire attentive and caring team hadn't caught in our first three rounds of copy editing and proofreading. And I'm wondering if, I guess you've already spoken a little bit about the dynamics of working with a collective, but maybe adding to that, like the idea of learning and teaching each other, because like you say, you are now having the experience of people proofreading an issue that you've created. I think collectives can be great. I mean, they don't work with everything, but I think when it comes to the literary magazine structure that we have, it's, yeah, it's really wonderful. From right when I started working with Room, it was very clear that one thing that's super important is our mentorship and sort of looking at how do we get people on the editorial ladder? How do we look at, you know, sharing skills between each other? I think that with the collective, there's a way that we sort of have a, a mutual respect for each other's knowledge because we have so many people that are from a lot of different backgrounds, you know, writers, editors, different points in our careers. So I think that with the way that it's set up, yeah, we really do get that kind of back and forth. Yeah, respect for each other's knowledge in a way that isn't always available in a really strict hierarchy. Yeah, and the piece around sort of the copy editing and looking at content and bringing work into line with our values. And I think that for me, that really points to why it's important to have so many different voices at the table in a literary magazine, why it's important to have Black copy editors, Indigenous copy editors, and Black copy editors from a, a variety of different backgrounds and perspectives. Yeah, so that really, you know, kind of speaks strongly to me about that. But I think that that process felt, you know, more like supportive. We're all here because we want to support our authors. We want to put out beautiful issues. And so I was really happy with that, that, <laughs> that you were receptive to it. Because I think sometimes with proofreading, you know, I get into my proofreader brain and I want to just like, you know, work on it really quickly and kind of get through it. And so I think. I was worried I was a bit abrupt with that, I think. But I, yeah, just the whole way that everything was received in the conversation that has happened just speaks more strongly to the kind of supportive community that we created with this you know, group, of, group of editors and creators. From my side, I was so grateful. And I think, you know, there's this part of me that wants to 
be perfect around <laughs> doing things like, like I said, you know, we had this great team. We had a lot of BIPOC editors on the team as well. But again, like you said, we just need people from a whole bunch of different perspectives to be able to catch those things and support us in doing better in the text. My learning is always kind of like, okay, yeah, there's no such thing as perfection. This is an ongoing learning process and you need to come at it with just openness and humility as much as you can and go, oh shit, yeah, we screwed up in this case and we need to fix it stats. So that was a lovely way to meet you in terms of, yeah, like, you know, I never mind if someone's abrupt in proofreading because I'm just always grateful for any kind of catch, like be it grammatical or be it bias in the, in the writing. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, I really just feel like we're just here. To, it was, we're all putting out the same issue. We're all part of the same magazine and community. So yeah, it just feels like, you know, we're all just here to support each other. So now you've been in the other role you've edited and you're coming close, I think, to completing your first issue of Room. Is that correct? Or am I off on our schedule right now? Yes, somewhat close. I'm kind of in the middle, in the weeds. We just did our second round of acceptances. But before I get into that, I also just wanted to say very quickly that the neurodivergence issue is one of my favorite issues of Room that has ever come out. So I was also just very happy to be beyond that issue. Anyway, that was just a side note. Thank you. Uh, No problem. (laughs) I mean, I'm saying thank you, but again, it's also such a collective effort and all these amazing writers submitted to that issue. I felt really grateful to them as well. So thanks. Yes, the writers on the show, really. Right, so I am, you know, right in the middle. We're sort of in knees deep in copy editing, which is the part that I actually enjoy the most. You know, the selection process is always great. And getting pieces from our readers, usually regularly on an issue, I would be reading, I don't know why I always really don't like the term slush. But anyway, so um, usually I'll be, you know, reading submissions and then, of course, forwarding them to the regular editor. So it was nice to be on the other side of that and have work passed along by our readers to see what excites them and get to know how different readers work. And so I do love that process, you know, finding those pieces that I'm like, oh, I can't live without this being published. I need to publish this piece. And then moving into the copy editing stage, though, is actually my favorite, where you get to work with the authors directly. But there may be some. Um, We also receive work with dialect and patois in it in particular for this issue so we just brought on like a, a brilliant collected team member Omi Rodney who's also working on the issue as well and has sort of just jumped into the deep end with supporting some of those edits which is really important yeah so we are right in the middle of it you know it's a long it is a, it's a really long I think people sometimes don't realize how you know it takes basically a year from beginning of planning the issue selecting our commissioned author and all of those different aspects until we go to print. So the process began in July of 2021 and the issue will go to print in late June, 2022. So it is basically a year. So we're we're kind of right in the middle of the process. As you're looking at submissions, I'm wondering what are some of the qualities of the work that you received from the first readers this time? Then the pieces I guess that didn't make it into the issue and then maybe the pieces that did make it into the issue. What are, I guess, some of the things that you're noticing when you're reading them in that way of like, okay, I've got to fit this into a print magazine now. You know, there's kind of lots of minds at the table. 
we have our first readers who often will leave a little note saying why they fell in love with a particular piece. Then we also have the team. So there's myself, my assistant editor, uh, Michael Kiljoy, and then our two shadows, so Rashika and Omi. And so we all kind of are each of us reading what's forwarded and we all fall in love with pieces for different reasons. For me, I'm always kind of usually struck by things that have a very distinct voice. And that, that might sound a little bit hard to pin down, <laughs> but I, I yeah, usually know it when I see it. <laughs> I work with so many writers who are so frustrated by that phrase because a lot of editors say that, but it's, it's also just so true. I know. You don't know the unexpected things you're looking for until they unexpectedly knock your socks off of you. Exactly. I think if we had a lot more time, we could probably get into a little bit more specifically about what it means to have a distinct voice in writing. I mean, maybe just very, very quickly, if that's okay to get into. Yeah, of course. I can see when before, especially with the prose, I think it's a little bit more complicated with creative nonfiction because of course you're writing in your own voice. But I think especially with fiction and even shorter forms, I can tell, I think, when the author has thought about who is going to be telling the story and for what reason that person is telling the story and to whom they are telling it sort of before they sat down to write it. Because I think there's all those different aspects where sometimes we might say, this is a story I want to tell, and we just sit down and we just kind of put words on the page. But I think there's that extra step of thinking about who it's going to be told to and for what reasons and why, because those things really vastly change how the story is told. Yeah, I love that insight. I sometimes bring a prompt to writers that's like, when it comes to CNF specifically, why am I the person to tell this story? And to bringing some reflection into the writing process. So I super appreciate that insight. Sometimes for the work that doesn't make it in, and this is something I used to do, I think early on when I was into literary magazines, to send work that wasn't ready, that I think I didn't realize of how many drafts I had to go through with it, or even just kind of let it marinate longer about what I really wanted to say or spend more time with what I was trying to get across. So that happens, but sometimes it also happens as well where we're really sad to let go of a piece because I might see that it has, you know, our readers might have really responded to something in it, but it might need a little more work. And we also have to think about like how much time we can commit to copy editing certain pieces. We have a sort of a set period of time. So if something needs like really deep developmental edits, then we might not be able to commit that time even if we are really in love with it even if we're really in love with the content of the story that's being told. But we try to, in that case, you know, reject with encouragement. I think sometimes for, for writers, when they receive rejections, they may not realize like how far in the process the work got or that the editors might actually have loved it, but we might not be able to publish it for whatever reason. You know, one thing also really quick is that I try to also have a balance of content. So I think, especially during the pandemic, a lot of people were processing a lot of trauma, really. You know, I remember in the last issue, we were receiving a lot of work about mothers who were processing a lot of things about, you know, relationships and racism and isolation and all these different aspects, which is very, very important to do. But we might also want to create a balance of that so that especially for certain readers, you know, readers of color, it's not just like a barrage of trauma processing. So for whatever reason, yeah, we're trying to come to a balance in the work, but writers might not see that that. We really might have loved that piece, but we had to let it go for whatever reason. Yeah, I think it's 
so important. And I'm really glad that you're underlining that because in the absence of information, I think a lot of writers just fill in the gaps of, oh, they hated my work and they don't think I should become a writer or something, you know, like that's the most extreme. Yeah. Getting rejections or, you know, and then people always just say rejection is part of it. Like you have to just find a different way to not let it get to you or to be excited about it. Um, but that is also something to keep in, in mind as well, that your piece may have received a lot of love. It just might not have made it to the final publication. And maybe it's also a great story, but it needs you know to spend more time with it or, you know, great poem, but maybe to spend more time with the, with the themes or the content. I'm interrupting my conversation with Lou Palmer to ask you some questions. Do you want to go deeper in your writing? Do you sometimes wonder if your writing voice has a place in this world? Do you yearn to write work that resonates with readers? If you answered yes to any of those questions, my Write and Light course might be for you. In the Write and Light course, you will generate 10 honest, vulnerable stories or poems. It's your choice. You'll gain a deep understanding of your place in the world as a writer. You'll add tools to your toolbox to generate brave new writing. You'll know what you're meant to write and be ready to write more. The course starts right away and includes 10 inspiring lessons. Each lesson starts with instruction on a theme and curated readings, then moves into motivating preparation and writing assignments. Writers are well supported with processing and self-care activities. You can learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash write. That's rachelthompson.co slash write. What was your own experience first submitting to Lit Mag's in that question, I guess, is wondering what worked for you and what are there any things you would wish to change in the submission process, the way it works at, in general and then in some specific magazines, maybe? You know, I was trying to remember what, where I first submitted to, and I actually don't remember. I think maybe at the beginning, I was really caught up on submitting to contests, which is a, not the best route. <laughs> I think it's expensive and doesn't always pay off. But I think some of those sort of common things like sending out work that, that wasn't ready, I think that it makes more sense to sit with a piece and really make sure that it feels complete rather than send out a higher quantity of things. It might feel like pressure, like writers are always supposed to be producing, always supposed to be writing, always sending things out. But I don't, you know, if possible to kind of uh, resist that pressure would be a good thing. But that being said, one of the things that I did do, I just took the advice when I was trying to get, you know, more serious about making sure that I was submitting and doing so consistently when I had work ready. I took the friend of a, the, the advice of a friend and author that I really respect. And she was telling me, you know, kind of the volume to which she submits and based on that percentage of things that are accepted. And I was like, oh my goodness, it was quite intimidating because she just has this huge Excel spreadsheet where she keeps everything. But it ended up, you know, I wasn't ever aiming to submit to the volume that she was submitting because hers was more like um, nonfiction pitching. But it did help me, I think, to keep a spreadsheet with certain dates so that I knew when things were coming up. So it didn't feel like things were just always coming at me and the dates for, for submissions were flying by and I had no idea when they were. And then I would have missed them and been stressed about it. So I ended up being like, okay, I know that this magazine is open from here to here. And I know that I can look six months ahead and work on certain things. So that was helpful. 
Yeah, those spreadsheets are so helpful. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and it's so funny. I mean, you get into creative writing and you don't think, oh, it involves a lot of spreadsheets, but <laughs> it does when it comes to submissions. I'm hoping that you would tell us a bit about your first full-length work, The Hungry River, just because reading the description sounds really amazing. I've read that it's about a woman who loses her child and climbs into the sky to slap God, set on the backdrop of climate change and the fight of a community against environmental racism. And it chronicles a love song between nature and Black communities over 250 years and into the future. I would just love to hear more about that, about the love song between nature and Black communities. So I grew up in a really rural area and spent most of my time playing in the woods and you know, in the river and kind of unsupervised. And so, you know, we also lived in this house where there wasn't running water for a long time. And so we would go around the corner to the well and you know, in the wintertime, we'd like break the ice and drag water up and boil it. But it was this sort of strange parallel. I mean, with my family history on my mother's side, where my family here in Jamaica, where I am, different, but also similar in a lot of ways, where for many generations here and still, there's this really close relationship with farming and growing one's own food and having a close relationship with the river and not having water access. But, you know, sort of multiple generations, we've been very proud of my great-great-grandparents and what they did to kind of pass on certain skills and learn certain skills of farming and things that kind of love with nature and love with land and having a really close relationship and recognizing the value in it has been very important and something that my mother also carried as well. That was sort of her way to bring a lot of like fresh food and fresh vegetables into the house as I growing them and having to take part in that and spending all the time with kind of our hands in the dirt. So I kind of grew up uh, really valuing that. And I think that when it comes to, you know, Black relationships with nature, especially in an urban context and different points through history, I think it's been seen as, you know, Black people are separate from nature, like we don't have a relationship with nature or, or have been marginalized in environmental movements. And I just think that that is not at all true. And when you look at the history, I think that we have always been active environmentalists and in really close relationship with the world around us. You know, so I really wanted to write a story where Black communities and nature are in allyship with each other and, you know, write a lot of the really deep love that comes with that. And in terms of climate change, really what I wanted to do was create like a Black mythology of climate change. So a lot of it is, you know, taking place in the past, rewriting things and writing these kind of moments of tenderness or mutual understanding, whether it's like with bodies of water or handfuls of soil or flower beds that have been passed down like multiple generations. So that's kind of where that came from. But I think that we really deserve kind of a refocusing, especially where communities of color are impacted by climate change. I just wanted to bridge that gap to make the story focused on us. Have you been writing Afrofuturism, which I think is a label you apply to your writing, and I apologize if it's not, or a speculative work. And then I'm wondering, 
what brought you to this genre, if, the, if those are the genres that you identify the writing with. And then also in that question is kind of like, what experiences of reading and storytelling shaped your writing? I think that Afrofuturism as a label is like a great and wonderful, expansive label. I'm not entirely sure how to label my own work. I just know that the stories that I started writing had, you know, when I started writing the novel, it was actually a collection of short stories and, and all of them often had this either a presence of spirits or like a anthropomorphizing something. And so I would apply the label of Afrofuturism. <laughs> I'm not sure if, you know, all the work that I will create in my life will, will fall under that realm, but it's definitely a classroom of interest. In terms of the reading that shaped me and my work, you know, my mother is a very avid reader, so she was kind of always reading to us, often, you know, sometimes like outside or reading stories or making up stories. There was a lot of that, uh, just kind of, you know, I would make up stories for my little sister. My mom would make up stories for both of us. You know, there were certain texts that my mom had in the house, you know, Maya Angelou and, and other writers. And then later on, it probably wasn't until... Honestly, until maybe late university or after university that I started to read writers like Nalo Hopkinson or Nettie Okorafor or Joel Gomez. So I, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't until much after that I started to read those stories. But even so, I think that even with just telling stories out loud, that there was some aspects of magic and, and spirits and things like that sometimes. Yeah, thank you, Yeah. Of the writers that I know from that list, they're wonderful. And I'll make sure to include that whole list in our show notes as well. I want to bring us to the quick lit round of this episode. And I'm going to invite you to finish these sentences. Um, the first is, being a writer is? Humbling. Literary magazines are? Small wonders. Editing requires? Care. And incisiveness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which maybe feels in conflict with each other sometimes. <laughs> Rejection for a writer means? Uh, growth. Writing community is? Everything. Mm. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being part of the podcast today, for being part of this collective community that we're in together as well, too. I'm just really grateful for you in practical senses, and then also just really excited to read the issue that you have coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. No problem, Rachel. Sign up for my Write and Light course, and you will create 10 honest, vulnerable stories or poems. It's your choice of genre. You will gain a deep understanding of your place in the world as a writer, and you will add tools to your toolbox to generate brave new writing. You can learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash write. So that was my conversation with Lou Palmer. I really appreciated Lou going beyond the stock answer that we hear from a lot of editors about the kind of writing they want to publish, which, by the way, I understand that sentiment. I feel it myself. It's like, I know it when I see it. But Lou, I think, very rightly points out that in the work that most resonates and that we are most excited to publish, we can tell that the writer has considered who is going to be telling the story and for what reason that person is telling the story and to whom they are telling it. 
We might sometimes just put words on the page, as Lou says, but if there is that extra step of reflection, it vastly changes how a story is told. And we as editors perk up and notice this. Room publishes fiction, creative nonfiction, poetry, and art by folks of marginalized genders, including but not limited to women, cisgender, and non-gender, transgender men, two-spirit, and non-binary people. We specifically encourage writers with overlapping, underrepresented identities to submit their work. We don't want writers to feel restricted by gender or genre labels, so if you're unsure if your work is a fit for Room, you can always get in touch with us. You can check out our homepage, roommagazine.com, regularly for updates on upcoming themes and deadlines. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every other week. Actually, lately, every week as I'm offline and I need need another outlet, so I've been sending out weekly letters and they're filled with support for your writing practice. If this episode encouraged you to bring more consideration to your writing about who is telling the story for what reasons and why, and then to submit your most polished work to Room or other journals, I would love to hear all about it. I'm on a social media hiatus. That's what I mean by being offline. I'm online in other ways, but just offline on social media. So you can drop me a line at hello at rachelthompson.co. And tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co or searching for Write, Publish, and Shine in their podcast app. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to keep rising to the challenge and writing luminously. My guest spoke to me from Port Antonio, Jamaica, and I am a guest in the South Sinai, Egypt, on lands historically and presently occupied by the El Tirabin Bedouin.